Well, here we are in Joshua chapter 9. If you're unfamiliar with Scripture, that's totally okay. Uh, You don't have to be a scholar to be here. As a matter of fact, the whole goal is to fall in love with Jesus. So perhaps you're a little concerned because we're opening up Scripture that was roughly 1400 B.C. is roughly where we're at in time. We're at a time where the nation Israel, who had wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, has finally stepped into the land that was promised them, but there are inhabitants. Now, if you think before, God just starts, and God doesn't have a problem with swift and strong judgment, by the way. Uh, he'll always, people will always shake their fist at it. But please understand that he told Abraham over 400 years before this that the fullness of the Amorites is not yet complete. Uh, And and he tells us he was patient. He was very patient with a group of people that got to a place where the only thing left to do was to remove them from the land. And from doing that, then Joshua and the people that that God has promised the land to way before that um, are actually now going to take the land. So as they go to take the land, they have these major battles. Uh, The three major battles that take place um, are in the last few chapters, as we saw six, seven and eight. We saw the battle of Jericho. We saw the battle of Ai. And this one will seem much less like a battle, to be honest. And the reason is, is because it's not hand-to-hand combat. Growing up a fighter, when I think of fights, I always think of something that usually involves, like, blood. So when people who weren't raised in that type of thing, and and they tell me, well, that couple had a fight, my first thought is, "Uh uh-oh, you know, where the ambulance is called, and they just meant they had a sharp disagreement, or even a disagreement that wasn't so sharp, but in their eyes, that was a fight. And the only reason I say that is, is that for some, certainly even discord seems like a horrible fight. We don't normally like that. Here in this particular case, this is not going to seem like much of a battle, but it is certainly just as great as the others, and it will cause just as much, if not more, problems. Now, please hear me. We're going to go right to prayer and jump into this particular text. That in the last few chapters, this is kind of what we looked at. And again, let me actually make it even simpler than I have. Uh, the simple program for seeking the Lord in a battle. Let's just use the acronym CSI. Since some of you have seen that on TV or whatever the case is on telly. CSI, but in this case they mean very, very different things than crime scene investigators. Here, let's just say the C stood for consecrate. The S came for seeking the Lord. And then the I came from initiating. That was the idea. That was always the way that it was supposed to be. They consecrated, they set their hearts apart unto the Lord, and then they sought the Lord. And as they sought the Lord, they sought what God's will and direction was. It was, And then they went and gathered everybody and initiated that plan. Now, in the case of Jericho, that's actually a fairly simple one. Then when they came and crossed over the Jordan, then what happened is they consecrated by circumcising the entire second generation of guys. Now, understand, if you're about to fight a hand-to-hand battle where blood is going to be shed and this is you need guys in their top form, you would think this would be a step back, predisposing them already to that kind of harm. However, it's actually the opposite because no battle can be fought with a hard heart. No battle of the Lord, that is. And so understanding that they did consecrate. And then did they seek? Well, yes, as a matter of fact, Joshua finds himself on his face before the angel of the Lord. And as he does, the angel of the Lord gives him the strangest advice about how to take down Jericho. You're to march around the city for seven days. Don't say anything. Just blow your trumpets and walk around it once and go back. But on the seventh day, I want you to walk around it seven times and then blow your trumpets like you normally do. And then turn around to the city and just scream your head off. And then as you scream your head off all the wall, that gigantic wall is going to fall down flat. 
Now, that seems like a really crazy advice. So imagine being Joshua having to initiate that advice. So he consecrated the camp. Then he sought the Lord and then he initiated that plan. And by the way, it was a perfect success. One would think we get to the second battle, the battle of Ai, and already things are already problematic because somebody within the camp had taken things that weren't theirs. They had done something hidden in their tent, and in doing so, they had no idea how this was going to affect their private sin, radically affected so many people that the, t- that the army lost and 36 men were killed. And understand, again, consecrate, seek, initiate. Did you get that? Which one did they blow? They blew the first one. They didn't even consecrate. The camp was unconsecrated. And God says, listen, as long as the camp is unconsecrated, this isn't going to go forward. I am not going to move forward with you anymore until you get this out of your camp. So Joshua gets up, pulls Achan and his family, who apparently seem to be party to it as well. Understand, it wasn't like God just said, kill them all, because... Well, of all people, Achan's wife actually was not killed, which tells me that somehow she wasn't party to this. But other people seemed to be in his family. So they were killed. Their, their house was torn down. The whole thing was a big pile of rocks by the time they were done. And it was another pile of rocks to warn you. This is what happens when you really play with God and think that you can do this yourself. So. With that, then the camp is reconsecrated. God has a new, God gives his plan. That's the instruction. That's the seeking part. And in seeking, they, he says, listen, I want you to ambush this thing hard and heavy. And as they do, they finally have their victory. This in seemingly insignificant uh, city that only had two letters for a name winds up becoming a very great threat. Now look at, in the first case, total success, consecrate, seek, Initiate. Second case, there was a problem with the consecrating. And once that was reestablished and the camp was reconsecrated, they sought the Lord. They initiated the plan and it was success. Are you following me? Now we have our third one here in this chapter. But please hear me in this. God is going to show us that there are, as Christians, three great battles we face. This will be our third. Look at it with me, starting now in verse one. It came to pass... When all the kings who were on this side of the Jordan, in the hills and on the lowland, and in all the coasts of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittite, the Amorite, Canaanite, Perizzite, Hivite, and the Jebusite heard about it, that they gathered together to fight Joshua and Israel with one accord. But the inhabitants of Gibeon, on the other hand, when the inhabitants of Gideon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they worked craftily. And when it pretended to be ambassadors... And they took old sacks on their donkeys, old wineskins torn and mended, old and patched sandals on their feet, and old garments on themselves, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua at the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a far country. Now therefore make a covenant with us. Now the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you dwell among us, So how can we make a covenant with you? But they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, well, who are you and where have you come from? They said to him, from a very far country, your servants have come because of the name of the Lord, your God. For we have heard of his fame and what he did to Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sihon, king of 
Eshban and Og, king of Bashan, who was an Ashtoreth. Now, therefore, your, our elders and our inhabitants of our country spoke to us, saying, Take provisions with you for your journey and go to meet them. And say to them, We are your servants. Now, therefore, make a covenant with us. This bread of ours what we took hot from our provisions from our houses on the day that we departed to come to you. And now, look, is dry and moldy. And these wineskins, which we filled, were new. And see, they're torn. And these, our garments and our sandals, have become old because of this very long journey. Then the men of Israel took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel of the Lord. Ooh. Consecrate, seek, initiate. What did they not do? And it will be even before that, they did not seek. They did not seek counsel from the Lord. Pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you for the privilege of this time and what you're going to do in it. I pray for that fresh immersion into your Holy Spirit that I would disappear and you would be seen. And I pray tonight, God, you would open up every eye, every heart to what you want to teach us in this text. And I thank you, Lord. For the way that you speak. So get me out of your way, Lord, and come upon me. Lord, let me speak your truth unapologetically with no agenda but yours. And in that now, Lord, I pray that you would profoundly, profoundly speak. So predispose us to hearing you tonight on this cool evening in this cool room in this cool church. Set our hearts on fire for you. Do not allow us to be distracted. Do not allow us to divert what you want to speak directly to us tonight. But for every one of us, open our hearts and minister now. We are seeking you. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any night, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be your final say. Now hear me. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Verses 4 and 5, many of us are familiar with this. It's called traditionally the Shema. Shema because it is the word in the Hebrew for hear. And God says in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Let me say that again. You shall love the Lord your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Here we go. Let me ask you, what was the first thing we're to love God with? All of our heart. Beautiful. What's the second one? All of our soul. And the third, all of our strength. God says, after giving all of the commandments, let me put it as simple as I can. This is all I'm asking. What I really want from you is your love. That's what I want. And if I had your love, everything else would fall into place. You wouldn't be bargaining with me about time or your stuff or people or relationships. None of that would be the issue because clearly, first and foremost, what you would be doing is addressing the issue. That you, if I had your love, we wouldn't, be, we wouldn't be dealing with that. Now, interestingly enough, heart, soul, and strength. And in that same way, there are three battles that a Christian faces. 
as a person. And by the way, let me define what a Christian is, just in case you don't know. A Christian is not just someone who comes to church. A Christian is not someone who was born into a family that was religious. You look around the room, several of you, you know, you weren't born into religious families. Remember, you were born into anti-religious families. Becoming a Christian is one of the most discordant things that has happened in your family. And they think something's wrong with you now because your head's on straight. We are all sinners. We are all broken. We are born defective. And in being born defective, what is clear and evident is that God knew that before we were born and chose out of his own love to pay the price for us on the cross by dying on the cross so that all of our sin could be fully paid for. But listen, something I've been dealing with lately is that it's easy to look and say Jesus paid for the sin of man collectively, and that's why he died on a cross. But until I fully recognize how great and grave my sin is personally, to say he would have hung on a cross if I were the only person he had to pay for, I will never be as thankful and as humble as I should be before him. I'll be like, yeah, God, that was really cool. Thanks for being my homeboy. Instead of me being on the floor going, oh my goodness, God, I so do not deserve this mercy or grace. It's in that kind of touch, that kind of understanding where everything really changes. And Jesus says, for he who was forgiven much, loves much. It's in not realizing how much you've been forgiven, we don't love each other. We tend to be everything but that. We compete, we condemn, we do all kinds of things, but we don't forgive. We don't love because we don't realize how greatly we've been forgiven. Well, with that in mind, hear me on that. That though Jesus died on the cross, that's half the story. Him dying on the cross says that everything that we've done has been paid for. But that only says that my past is handled and my future sins are wiped away. But it doesn't speak about what I'm to do now. The resurrection speaks of that. As Jesus, just as Scripture promised, on the third day rose again, he testifies that there's a whole new life to live now. And as there's a whole new life to live, the problem is I am infinitely more familiar with the old life than I am with the new one. And that's a real problem. When I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, and I won't even say Lord and Savior, but when I accepted him as my Savior, I was 19. What that meant is, I was 19 years a sinner. I was gifted at sinning. I taught other people how to sin. I was teaching classes. I was getting my doctorate in sinning. I'm not proud of that. But the moment I said yes to Jesus, I was an infant in Christ. But I was still an adult sinner. And I had a lot to leave behind that was much more familiar with me than the world that I now am to embrace because Jesus rose again. Because Jesus rose again, I know there's a new life. Before that life, before the new life, there was an old burdened life. And that old burdened life, by the way, was a life burdened with sin. Burdened with, with just being helpless in my destruction. Oh, I played it off in all kinds of ways and tried to make it sound like I was proud of it. But I knew I was killing myself. And I knew I was hurting a lot of other people too. And there was that old burden. I recognized that. But there was so much more in having communion with that old life. You see, there was also this old lifestyle. This old lifestyle that said, by the way, this is who I am. Just deal with me. I'm violent. Deal with me. I'm angry. Deal with me. And that was the life I lived. 
I was known as kind of the person that, like, even when I first gave my life to Christ, it's kind of like, don't mess with that guy. You know, that guy should be. I remember when I, when I started going to a church, I understand, I went to a church every, like, Sunday and Wednesday, religiously, pardon the pun. And the, there was a gal at this particular church, and she was starting, she was doing this play. And as she was doing this play, she was on me about a part for it. She's like, listen, you've got to take this part. And I'm like, I don't want to be in your play. She's like, no, 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 really. It's as if this play were written for you. And I'm like, oh, come on. No, 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 really. I just want to come. I just want to get blessed. I just want to kind of grow in Jesus, that kind of thing. She's like, no, listen. And she bantered me and bantered me and bantered me and finally gave me the script. So I started reading the script about this part. She says, listen, you've got the lead role. People are auditioning all over the state, and I want to give you the lead role. What's wrong with you? I'm like, I don't want to do it. That's the thing wrong with it. So finally I read it. On the first page, the guy, this star of the show, steals a woman's purse. That's the first scene. I'm like, I went, wait a minute, how am I perfect for this role? And I get the idea. This was how I was portraying myself even after knowing Jesus. Even after saying yes, there was still that guy that was still much more accustomed to walking in these new shoes than I was. And that old life, that old lifestyle, that old walk, still every once in a while tries to get at me. Come on. Now for me today, it isn't like, why don't you go punch someone? I don't do any of that anymore. Praise God. For 25 years plus, I've never had any issues like that other than twice or three times I've had to. Well, anyways, it's not important. But it's like I've never had to be violent. That's the good news. Now, there's also this issue of this old priorities and this old identity of who I used to have. I mean, I remember who I was. I had very distinct, profound, or if you will, kind of definitive things that I would say these were, this is kind of who I am. In regards to the way I thought, in, the, in regards to whatever my talent base or my skill set was, all of those things kind of defined me. And so people kind of knew me as that. And, and the problem is when I gave my life to Jesus, it was almost like I tried to drag those new, those old things into this new resurrected person. That's a real problem. And, and I didn't even realize the battles I would face as a Christian. So listen, Jesus died on the cross for you. He rose again on the third day to give you a brand new life. And the choice is yours now. Will you accept that gift? Hey, Daniel, will you kind of close that door mostly? Because I probably will stop a breeze from coming in here. Thank you, bro. So please hear me in this. There are going to be these battles. And here are the three primary battles. As we see, remember, it's to love the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Those three things. Now listen, heart. Just like with Jericho, the battle will be the battle over your faith. Because the battle is going to be over what you feel. And most of the time, faith is going to be opposite of what you feel. Have you learned that yet? Faith says, this is who God is, whether I feel it or not, this is who he is. This is the truth, whether I feel it or not, there it is. That's the problem. And we're, of course, told by Disney and other people, you've got to follow your heart and you've got to believe in yourself. and all this. The problem is, is I really believed in myself. I knew who I was. And believing in that guy is not a really great idea. Letting that guy die for a whole new person is a great idea for all of us. And it was the moment that I realized. And it didn't take much for me. But then I lived the kind of life where, to be honest, there's nothing to brag about it. But I lived the kind of life where I could easily see Jesus hanging on the cross for my sins. 
And so please hear me in that there is that battle to this day and for the rest of your life, you will deal with the battle of faith. And the battle of faith is a battle over the world and its system because the world says be self-reliant and God says be God-reliant. And everywhere you go in this world and even in carnal Christian circles, you're going to find them still telling you to believe and put all your trust in yourself instead of trusting in the Lord. Now that doesn't mean we become irresponsible and uncaring, but what it does mean is that we are making sure that the Lord is the one making our decisions, even when they're hard and our heart says otherwise. Hey, choices, hey, listen, as a pastor, you've got to make really rough choices that your heart doesn't necessarily agree with, but you know are right. And you just have to trust that the Lord is, oh, he's always right. And the world will say, no, 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 that's not how we do it here. And it's like, yeah, but if it's how the Lord does it, our prayer is your will be done down here on earth as it is in heaven. That's the point. So there will be the battle over the world and the victory, according to 1 John, is our faith. That's the battle. And that's loving God. Here's the, here's the good thing. If you love the Lord with all of your heart, you will trust him. That battle will be won. The third one, loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. That was the issue with I. Just like we saw with the world being Jericho, I was something we thought was little and insignificant, so we didn't really come at it with full force. But instead, what we did is we just kind of, we kind of came at it kind of nonchalant. And as we came at it nonchalant, well, we, we went wound up getting our butts kicked because we were unconsecrated, because our heart wasn't in the right place. And finally, he said, you need to come at this with everything. And in the same way, with our strength, the battle is the battle over the flesh. Now, the flesh is not just the skin that surrounds you. Please know this. One of the things we learn as Christians is it isn't that you have a soul. You don't have a soul. You are a soul. You have a body. The good news is the soul is the part you keep. The body is the part you dish off. Now, for some of you, you're young enough where that still seems like a great loss. Some of us can hardly wait to cash in the old model for the new one. Hallelujah. And the older I get, the more I can hardly wait for that day. And that's one of the reasons I think the Lord allows us to get older. Is that he allows us to actually appreciate that the soul should be actually getting better every day while the body doesn't. But the flesh is more than that. What the flesh says is serve yourself. As where in the case of the world, what it says is trust yourself, rely on yourself. What the flesh says is serve yourself. Make yourself the number one. And this is the common quote of the world anyways. You can't love anyone else until you love yourself. But truth be told, you can't really love anyone else if you're busy loving yourself. Now, I'm not talking about like yourself or see yourself as important. Now, understand something. The moment I gave myself to Jesus, I knew how important I was. Jesus would rather die than live without me. That made that validated everything about me. I knew from that point on that it was never about me from that point because God was consumed with wanting to serve me. So why would I want to serve me? Because I can't serve me half as good as he can. So there is the battle of the flesh. It's the same battle we see in Galatians chapter 5 and 6 when it tells us that if we walk in the Spirit, which isn't something ethereal, the idea is in selflessness and in surrender to God, well, then we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh because we won't be walking in the flesh. So please hear me. Of the three battles that we face, one battle is a battle of the heart. It's the battle of faith, the battle over the world. 
One battle is the battle over the flesh. The victory, then, is in surrender to God and walking in his spirit. So the one in between, loving the Lord with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your strength. Are you following me? It's the middle one we're at now. And listen, for the rest of our lives, we're going to deal with this. And I want to warn you, as times grow nearer to the Lord's return, and that could happen in any moment according to Scripture, as things draw near, the church is going to become increasingly more worldly. You will not get godly answers from the majority of the church. That's what the Bible makes clear. You'll always get them from Scripture. You'll always get them from Him. But just because a person calls himself whatever does not mean you should expect it. So here's our third battle, the one in the middle, the battle of the spirit, if you will. In this case, when I say it's the battle against Satan himself and his minions. Look at it with me. It says in Joshua 9 and 1 again, It came to pass in the days when the kings were on this side of the Jordan, they heard about this battle. They all joined together. See, now up to this point, every battle we've done has been offensive. We've taken ground because we've gone out there and we've taken the ground. But for the first time now, there are a group of people and they are joining together for battle. Which means whether we want to fight this battle or not, it's going to happen. Like it or not, these guys are coming. But not everybody is of this mindset. There were a group of people that we read here are Gibeonites. Now, Gibeonites, for what it's worth, and I'll give you kind of a little bit of background. You don't need much. But these Gibeonites, as we see here, they were, according to Joshua 10, we'll see in the next chapter, they were a great city. Their men were mighty. In Joshua 11:19, they were of the Hivite clan. And according to 2 Samuel 21.2, they are of the remnant then of the Amorites that we're going to see battling them here in a moment. By the next chapter, Joshua and their, and their crew will have to defend them because of the league that they've gotten in. And these people realize that they, even though they're mighty, even though they are feared by these other kings... They are until, listen, 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 until Joshua stepped onto the scene, they were the big thing. Hey, Jericho had its wall, but that doesn't mean they're an offensive force. Does that make sense? What that means is they think they're safe inside, like the world does. I, for the most part, was kind of left unattended, but when it came to, because they were so seemingly small and insignificant, but Gibeon were known as big, mighty men, and people were frightened to death of them. And up to this point, they've been the big man on campus until Joshua steps onto the scene with his people. And the moment Joshua steps on the scene with his people, they know that they've been outclassed. And that puts them in a very difficult position because up to this point, they've been the tough ones. So they realize they're going to have to do something about it. So instead of fighting to destroy them, do you know how they try to battle them? They try to battle them by trying to join them. Throughout Scripture, there will be time and time again where you'll find that the enemy works in this very same way. Second, Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13 says this about those who were leading the Corinthians. And listen, here's the point. The people that were in Corinth, that were, they be, they've become Paul's enemies because Paul exercised judgment on an individual that was actually sleeping with his mom. And because of this sexual sin that the church was really complacent and actually proud of the fact that they were tolerant of, Paul says, you need to kick this person out of the church until they repent. 
And with that, what happens is Paul came down hard because he loved those people, but there were a group of people that rose up then, and as they were led, they were doing this. They became Paul's enemies. The very people that responded to the gospel by Paul's ministry, the very people that had come and sat under Paul's teaching, the same people that had been discipled by Paul and raised up by Paul, put in leadership by Paul, were now enemies of Paul because of a group of people that had started trouble. And this is what Paul says about him in 2 Corinthians 11.13. Such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, that's his servants, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. Now understand, this is what Satan knows, is that he could do more damage by pretending to be us than he could by actually trying to make evil look cool. Although I think he does both. Now listen, before I was saved, and I'm not proud of this, but I kind of, this is how I understood this, before I was saved. My first year in university, I was required to live at the university dorms. I didn't have a choice. I actually had a lot of money at that point. I'd come kind of from a musical background that had made a lot of money, and I actually bought a house I couldn't live in. So we rented it out, and into the dorms I went. We went into the music dorms. And as I went into the music dorms, and, and I've got to tell you, it's the strangest universe. I mean, they should do a sitcom about what the music floor. It was because our school was the best jazz college in the United States, there was guys that didn't know anything but jazz, which was great. I mean, you could have been famous in every other way and they wouldn't have known who you were, which was a really great thing. I was, I was more than happy about that. And they were strange. Everyone had a name that was weird. And it was, just, it, was a, it was a very easy place to blend in. So I know what some of you are thinking. It was perfect for you. And it probably was. Now, if you know anything, music college, by the way, is like one of the things is we had a class. One of the classes was at one in the morning because they kind of knew as a musician's, you're already doing gigs and stuff, so why don't you just do, you know, it just made sense. That was already our natural clock at that time. So when a group of guys, and I won't say who because I don't want to embarrass the Mormons, showed up early with their ties and their badges to try to go onto our floor and were led on, we were really displeased because they would show up at like 7, 8 in the morning to do this. Most of us had been out quite late last night, and most of us, whether it was for bad intent or not, whether it was doing gigs, one thing's for sure, we got to bed about five or six. So when you get a couple hours of sleep and someone comes knocking at your door with their literature, we were a little upset about it. So we complained, and they didn't do anything about it. And we says, listen, at first, just tell them to come later, and they wouldn't do that, and these guys still kept coming, and we were getting nowhere. Now, please understand, I'm not proud of this. I'm just telling you I understand how this works. So we finally had to come up with a plan to get these guys out. So all we did was, a group of us on this, and it was fairly easy to get guys like this on that floor. We all went to the charity shop and got clothes just like a Mormon, put them on and ran around and created all kinds of havoc around the school. Their charter was revoked that week. And, when, and here's the point of it. Yeah, see, I'm not proud of that, but here's the point of it. I, and before that point, I didn't know the Lord anyways, and I'm not trying to excuse myself. What I'm telling you is that it, I get it, is that if you really want to destroy someone, act like them and let everyone think that you're them. 
You know what it's like when you try to tell the people that Jesus transforms human people and they go, oh, yeah, well, what about that Christian? Or what about that Christian? They're like, how do you know they're Christian? Because they say they are. Oh, well, that works. So if I said I was a duck, you'd believe me? If I said I was an ATM or a bank, would you give me all your money? And here's the point of it, is that in all of that, what Satan does, and I'm not saying, hey, look, I'm not trying to make you paranoid and look around and go, oh, that person's probably Satan's plan. You know, I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is that in Paul's situation in 2 Corinthians, people had actually stirred up a whole group of people that Paul had invested his entire life in. And he says that the more that I love you, the less I'm actually loved by you. How strange is that? And the idea of it was, is that if you can't beat them, join them is the idea. Or let me say it this way. If you can't beat them outright, infiltrate them. And we're seeing that in this country, let's be honest, with other groups of people right now that have come in. And I'm not talking about races. I'm talking about religions that are even, in, in some cases, extreme, that even there, there is this whole long-term plan to take over a country. And if you can't beat them, infiltrate them, and then take them down from the middle. And that is exactly what the Gibeonites are doing. The question is, do you want to be taken down by someone like this? How could you be taken down by someone like this? Well, look, let's look at their tactics for a moment because I think it's really simple but profound. Hear me on this. We have this kind of, we have these you know, adages. When you've been in the ministry for a while, you kind of get these little slogans. You kind of get that. Anything you do long enough, you get slogans. And one of them is always be careful of the person that's busy trying to recruit or convert the saved. Because the moment someone's always trying to gather up people around them, there's all kinds of scriptures against people like that. When what they're trying to do is whatever their cause is, whatever their pet thing is or whatever, they're constantly kind of pulling people into their thing. You've got to be really careful of that. Because sooner or later, what happens is you just think that whatever they say is fact, even though you've never witnessed any of that information yourself. But because of the fact that they speak with such convincing and with such passion, you just assume, well, that must be the truth. So listen what they do. What we have to do is pretend like we've come from really far away because if we're close, we know they'll kill us. So we have to pretend like we're from far away. We get that idea. So they have to pretend like they've gone a long distance, right? But look at what they did and how God uses this, how he speaks to me and prayerfully to all of us. They pretended to be ambassadors, first of all. They pretended to be representatives. And in pretending to be representatives, this is what they did. They got old sacks. That was the first thing. In other words, what they got was old burdens. Burdens that were old. And you know what that happened is what they also took on those, on those donkeys? Old wineskins. Look at it with me. Verses 4 and 5. Old sandals. Old garments. And old bread. And I, I don't know if you realize this, but if we took a look at, at what we have here, if we, everything fit into the sack, what we have are four things. And what's interesting is that on the outside, the two things on the outside, I don't know if you noticed this, was wine and bread. Did you notice that? And the two things in the middle were sandals and garments. And then I start to think, well, wait a minute. In my life, the moment I said yes to Jesus, you know what my problems were? Those very same things. See, bread and wine is communion, right? The idea of being part of, as we see it with Jesus, as he leads us to that in all four of our Gospels. But what if I'm having communion with my old burdens, with my, well, what are the sandals? That's my old walk, my old lifestyle. 
I get that. When I look at someone's sandals, you, what you look at, even in someone's sandals, is you can tell how they walk. Now, I guess we have somebody, I, I think we have somebody now that starts to work again. Nike, or Nike, sorry. Uh, and, and, and in that, it's interesting, because one of the first things they do is they try to get you to jog for a moment, and then they look at your shoes, and they try to develop shoes against the way that you jog wrong, if that makes sense. Because some people lean inside, some people lean outside, and of course, you don't want shoes that are bad for that. And I'm like, what if what this person was doing was appealing to your old walk, the walk before Jesus? And then we're saying, well, wait a minute. How do you play into that? Well, it's simple. One of the ways to do that is to play into your old strengths. And another way is to play into your old insecurities. You have a sense of justice? Well, let's play into that. You have a sense of anger? Well, let's play into that. You have a natural, you have a natural tendency to hate people? Let's play into that. You're given over to anger? Well, let's play into that. That's it. That's simple. You're given over into feeling very insecure about yourself? Well, let's play into that. You don't feel like you're as smart or as quick or as cute or as bright or as talented as someone else? Let's play into that. And what happens is we're trying to get you back into your old walk. And that's what happens if someone sits next to you and they start recruiting you by playing into the old person instead of the new. What's interesting is you can somebody can recruit you saying that you should, that they're being wronged by being hated, but recruiting you to hate them in doing so. So be careful. But then there's this other thing, these old garments. And it's interesting, is the old garments, understand garments are two things. Garments are first your identity. Let's face it, you learn a lot about a person by the clothes they wear. Now, I'm not saying you judge a person in that. But let's be honest in some of that. Uh, when you see a guy that's out there and he's trying to look like a goth or he's trying to look like an old 80s punk guy, but he's got the fake mohawk, that says something to me, which is ironic because the whole idea of the punk movement was totally against the worst thing you could call an old punk was a poser. So it's odd that you could pose to be an old punk. There's an ironic thing to me in that. But you can see there are certain people that by the way the clothes they wear, they want to be left alone. And there are certain people by the clothes they wear, they want to be seen a lot. We can see that. It's part of your identity. There are certain people that you know that they're like 80, but they think they're 30 because the clothes they're wearing don't quite fit like they should, but they're still trying to make them fit like they should, you know. And you're going to think, well, you know, well, bless their heart. You know, I used to just be angry. Now I was kind of like, oh, bless their heart. They probably really mentally, maybe that's where they're at. And I get that. But see, clothes also were a source of wealth. Remember even in Aachen, in Aachen's case, how he took a Babylonian garment? Clothes were something you paid people with. And I get this. Because what you have is your old identity and your old value system, your old priorities. Well, what was important to you back then? So what you have are people recruiting and going, you know, before you knew Jesus, you thought this was really an important issue. Then you gave your life to Christ. And to be honest, it became very unimportant. But someone else said, hey, you need to make that important again. And you're like, why? And they'll try to come up with some reason. But in the end of it all, and here's the simple stuff, beloved, that everything they share takes your eyes off of Jesus. That's the end of it. We'll take your eyes on to a lot of other things and even Christian-ish things, but they won't put them where they belong is on Jesus. Because, hey, let's face it, when your eyes are on Jesus, it's really simple. So they're like, hey, why don't you take a look at all of this? Look at this old walk. Look at this old identity. Come on, don't you love it when, you know, hey, if you have to look back for the glory days, 
You haven't embraced the resurrection, the third day like you should. Because if you embrace the third day like you should, the glory days are ahead of you, not behind you. That's just the way that works. But I can look and go, you know, yeah, but remember when I was 20 and what I was like when I was in shape? My wife decided, notice by the way, there was no vote on this. She decided we were going to go on a diet. Yeah, yeah, bless her for it. Bless her for it. Because I give her much less grief than our daughter does, by the way. She's like, what? But I'm like, okay, well, if you, you, know, you want to do it, because I know sometimes we becomes me. I, I, you know, that becomes part of a relationship. We know that. Hey, why don't we go clean the, what are you going to do? You know, I mean, I, I, that, that's just part of relationships. But there, you know, but it's like, you know, I think we really need to go on this thing. And I'm like, well, okay, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. So for the last two days, I'm kind of hopping on the, you know, hopping on a treadmill, which by God's grace, we were given by a place that we serve at. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Uh, the smell has gone away now and it's actually usable and it's beautiful, you know. And, uh, and I'm just, and of course, I'm looking back and thinking, man, if I were 20, this wouldn't have to happen right now. You know, and God's like, if you were 20, you would not be in this position you're in in a lot of good ways either. You wouldn't be married at 20, so don't be thinking that way. I'm like, okay, Lord, you're right. Sorry. I'll jog with this body where it, you know, half of it's going up and the other half's going down on a jog. The brand new experience for me, let me tell you what. Brand new experience. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, all right, Lord, I don't want to look back at anything and go, oh, wasn't that the time? I don't want to look back at California or the church that we were at. That seemed like everything was running so smoothly and there was purity as a big issue and people were just starving to be more like Jesus because I probably will forget the other things that probably made it a lot less 100% of that. I am so excited about now and I'm so excited even more so about tomorrow and about what the Lord is going to do. But please hear me in this. If somebody you know, Christian or otherwise, is bringing you backwards, you need to address that. And just because the person's a Christian doesn't mean they're great for your walk. So either tune it up or get out and get somewhere else. Because in the end of it all, I want to become more like Jesus every day. And I don't want to look back and go, hey, well, what about those old priorities? And what about those old identities? And remember who we used to be? Or remember who you used to be? Or don't you think we could go back and revisit that or any of that? And that's what these people are doing. And please understand, these Gibeonites have a ruse. They are intentionally lying and they know it. But the reason, don't miss this, the reason they're lying is because they're afraid. They're afraid because they see a power greater than theirs and it scares them. So as a result of that, they play this thing out. So it's like, check it out. Check out my old walk. Check out my old wineskins. Check out my old bread. Check out my old identity. Check out my old cloak. It's all in my old burden. My old burden. The burden of the oppressor, according to Isaiah 9.4. The burden that God destroys. Listen to this in Isaiah 10.27 when he says, It shall come to pass in that day that his burden will be taken away from your shoulder, his yoke from your neck, and the yoke will be destroyed. Listen, because of the anointing oil. Do you know what destroys that yoke? The Spirit of God. It's interesting. Jesus would say, of course, in Matthew 11:30, "My yoke is easy, my burden is light." You're not going to be yokeless. You're just going to have His. Interesting. 
Peter would speak about these individuals. And he says in Second Peter, chapter two, verse 19, while they promise liberty, they themselves are slaves to corruption by whom when a person is overcome is brought into bondage. And I don't think there's a lot of the bondages we even recognize are really bondages like gossip, like anger or bitterness. It's amazing how many things can become a bondage. So back in our story, it picks up quickly. Now listen, it says they went to Joshua. They said, take a look at all of this stuff. You know, hey, we're really from far away, which they aren't. They're actually from quite close, within 30 miles. And, and you know, hey, we're really far away. Check out our stuff. And so listen to this, by the way. So and it says, this is why, because we've heard of your fame, of your God, what he did to Egypt and what he did to those two really, really big kings of the Amorites already. So look at verse 14. By the way, it says, so, so take a look. Look at my burdens. Check out, and he says, by the way, check out my bread. Check out my wine. Right. Check out my clothes. Check out my shoes. See for yourself. But notice in verse 14 what they did look at. In verse 14, it says, and when the men of Israel took some of their what? Provisions. What is a provision? Hmm. Yeah, the word provision is the word. And here's the simple word. Sayid. Could you say Sayid? Sayid means you ready for this? Lunch. That's what it means. So what did they check out then? Yes. So what, would, what two things did they look at? The bread and the wine. What they, what they took their hands and became a part of was the old communion, not the new one. The one of communion of a life that should have been dead at the cross. But if you don't embrace that third day resurrection where we are now a new living thing, we'll only look back at that and say, well, that's who I am. And I'm better go, you know, I'm going to try to be a Christian, but I'm going to be a Christian with patched wineskins. Well, it's interesting because didn't Jesus speak about that when he told us that you can't put new wine in old wineskins? Matthew 9, 17, Mark 2, 22, Luke 5, 37 and 38. The new wine was the Holy Spirit. Then it doesn't work in an old form formality or format. The old walk, by the way, it tells us in Ephesians 4, 17, we should no longer walk as we used to walk, as the Gentiles walk in the futility of our minds. But rather in Galatians 5, 16, we're to walk in the spirit. The old coverings, Ephesians 4.22, put off the old man and the former conduct that came with that old man, which grows corrupt and continually, listen, according to the deceitful lusts. According to the cravings that God is not wanting to satiate the way you do, and they're deceitful, but rather be renewed by the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. The old bread, 1 Corinthians 5.8, let us... Keep the feast, not with the old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread, excuse me, of sincerity and truth. Every person's going to seem right when you sit with them. But that doesn't mean it's true. So the people looked, and you know what they looked at? They looked at the bread and the wine. And that was the order it came in now. And as they looked at the bread and the wine, they did not seek the Lord. They said, you know, that's that makes enough sense to me. Sure. Yeah, okay. Let's make a covenant. And that's exactly what the enemy wants to do with you. What he wants to do is he just wants to recruit you and he wants to recruit you to isolate you. And this is the way it works. The moment he can pull you out, just like a lion to devour, you can't kill, you can't eat the herd, but if you can chase one away, that's the one you eat. 
And that's exactly what the enemy's been trying to do with every one of us, me included. Hey, don't think you're the only one that battles with things like, you know, the enemy says, you know, if you were gone from here, this would be so much better. I know, the good news is at least I know that's the enemy. But I hear that too. What do you think my wife hears? You know, if you weren't part of this, this would go farther. Doesn't that sound familiar? She knows it's the enemy. That doesn't make it feel any better. But at least for the moment, she, she at least knows it's, that, that's a, it's a lie. You get it? It's like the enemy wants, he, he, he thrives on that. So this is how this brings about. Joshua did make peace with them. Verse 15. He made a covenant with them and let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. The question is, when did they discover that this was wrong? Look at verse 16. When did they discover it was wrong? At the end of three days. Don't you think it's interesting God picked that? And that third day when there's a resurrection, because somewhere down the line you go, there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than just like being saved. And, but now, because like, now I'm like, I'm at that stage where I'm still trying to do my old life, but I'm not getting satisfied in it. And I'm trying to get that old identity, but it's like irritating even me. And it's like, all that old stuff is like, how in the world does this work? And it's like, then all of a sudden you get you kind of that head-on collision with Jesus and you go, hey, I intended for you to have a resurrected life. And that resurrected life moves forward, not backward. This doesn't isolate, this doesn't recruit for, for my own personal purposes within, you know, the things that this is Jesus saying, I want you mine and I want to make you more like me. Walk and get that fullness of joy and walk and get that life more abundant. That's what I have for you. Follow me in this. And it's on the third day that these guys went and go, oh, wait a minute. You guys aren't far away. I've been, I've been lied to. Listen, the resurrection tells you I've been lied to that there's, more, that there's nothing more than, than Jesus is a get out of a hell free card. And if that's all you think that Jesus is, is for keeping you from hell, you have been lied to. Let me tell you the truth. Because of that, the enemy's closer than you think. He's a lot closer than you think, and you've been listening to his lies. He's intended a life, and let me tell you, my life in Christ is so amazing that even in the face of crazy circumstances, I can still smile and say, my God is awesome, and everything, and then I look and I see, I'm praying, and he gives me a rainbow to go, let me tell you, everything has an end on this, and I'm trust me in this, you've got to trust me and follow me, I'm going to take you through this, and we're going to be so stoked on the other side of this, and I'm going to give you peace through it, and I'm going to give you joy through it, because I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I'm like, oh, bring it on. And all of a sudden, I'm glad to let the other stuff die. Hey, I mean, I know what he's going to make of me, but I just know this much. He doesn't have to show me the blueprints for me to be convinced it's going to be good. So, after the third day, it says at the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were their neighbors and who dwell near them. Then the children of Israel journeyed and came to their cities on the third day. Now the cities of Gibeon, Chifirah, Biroth and It's interesting. They got that far and went, wait a minute, you guys look kind of familiar. But the children of Israel didn't attack them because the rulers of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the children have complained against the elders. Of course, they're like, how come you did this? 
But the, I remind you, it was the people who also looked at those rituals, looked at those, looked at their lunch. Then all the rulers said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. This we will do. We will let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Now, understand, God makes really clear in Psalm 15, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord and who can stand in his holy place? He with clean hands and a pure heart who has not raised his soul to the idols. And it says, who swears to his own hurt. God says, you got to keep your word, man. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And in all of that, it says, we, we can't go back on this, this but. The ruler said, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers for all the congregation as the rulers could prize them. It's interesting is that these very same people now are going to wind up making the fire hotter and bringing in the living water. Strange as that is, it will demand more living water and it will demand more fire. And can I just say, whatever things we allow in our lives will demand more fire for us to see it out. And it will demand for us to rely more on God's Holy Spirit. So with that, they have to respond to them. Joshua called to them. And he spoke to them, saying in verse 22, Why have you deceived us? We are, we are very far from you when you dwell near us. Now therefore, you're cursed. None of you shall be freed from being slaves, woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Because your servants were clearly told that the Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. See, they didn't tell him this in the beginning, did they? Now they're saying, you know what? If we're, going to be, if we're really going to have to come clean now that we're forced to, we knew that we were a target because we had already heard that, the, that God had given you this land. We had already heard that you were to destroy us to do it. So we were very much afraid for our own lives because of you and you've done this and have done this thing. Now here we are at your hands. Do with us as it seems good and right to do to us. So we did to them. Delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel and that they did not kill them. And that day Joshua made them woodcutters and water carriers of the congregation for the altar of the Lord and in the place that he would choose even to this day. Now what's interesting is, is that I remind you, though we will call it for the night on this, that the next chapter, of course, it isn't like, you know, that there were even chapter markings. You just continue on with the story. And what you'll find is it only takes within the next chapter for them to have to go and come to the defense of this bad uh, allegiance. The moment you get caught up in something like this, you're going to spend your time having to defend something that you should never have had to defend. And why? Because you've been recruited. Because you've been lied to. Me too, by the way. And it'll happen to every one of us. All you have to do is, and you know, it's like, hey, let's face it, our old life that we used to have that God killed at the cross, we can look back with romance at it and you should never do that. It's like a horrible relationship that you're so glad to be out of, but on those quiet moments, you look back at that one moment and like play Vivaldi music in the reminiscence of it. You're like, oh, I miss that moment. But that moment was couched around a thousand other horrible moments where you were mistreated. Don't look at your old life like that. Let it die. And let the Lord move us forward, beloved. So look at as we pray now, the Lord has intended and promised victory over all three. What is the promise of the victory over the enemy? Well, even the Antichrist, his representative, it says that they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives unto death. That's interesting. 
Because of the same three things that will tell us to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength. So as we go to prayer, beloved, if you said yes to Jesus, I'd like to challenge us today to say, Lord, lead us. May I only hear your voice. And in hearing your voice, lead me forward. A resurrected life now. A new walk, a new identity, a new value system, priorities. Yes, please. Oh, I would love that. I can hardly wait to see what we're going to discover. But if you've not said yes to Jesus Christ, let this be the night you say yes. We pray with me, please? Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful text and the warnings that come from it. I know for years and years and years, Israel will bane the fact that they've actually gotten into this allegiance that they should never have gotten into. And Lord, no doubt the Gibeonites were afraid. And no doubt the Gibeonites were enemies. The good news is that you will still turn that, Lord, for your good. But that doesn't mean that we should ever do so. And so let us take the warnings. You've told us that the things that were written before were written for our learning, that we should learn from that. We wouldn't lust after the same things they lusted after. And Lord, let us never lust after our past. Let us never look back and try to say, oh, if I could just redo that. If I could be that again. Let us not look back with our old identity our old value system, or our old walk, or our old habits, those habits that were so destructive now become, creep their way into a fellowship, Lord, and, and let that never be the said of me or anyone else. God, please, purge us of those things. We crave to be holy, and we recognize in this world that is not a well-accepted or applauded thing. But Lord, we want to shed who we were and embrace you to become more like you. Because we know that's the very best thing that we could be. So, Lord, even tonight, I pray, purge us of anything, of any lies that the enemy has planted in any of us, me included. Purge us completely. Set us free, Lord, from trying to get our, our cues from the world. And may our hearts and our minds be completely upon you, Lord, please. As we could say with complete confidence, we're yours. And with that said, if there be any in here who have not yet said yes to Jesus and know they need to, this is a simple prayer. And it's a prayer acknowledging what Jesus has done and accepting it, proclaiming that you're accepting that. And if you agree with this prayer at the end, I'm going to pray it, listen. And if you agree at the end, just say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. I claim that as my own. And here it is. God, I'm a sinner. Like all human beings, I'm a sinner. But you so love me, you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me so that my price could be fully paid because you love me and because you want me. So I say yes. If you really paid my price and you're really my ransom, I'm glad to let you pay my price. And for that I say thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. But that's only part of the story. It's just like Scripture promised you were buried and on the third day raised again. I want more than just my sins paid for. I want a new life, the new life that you invent, the new life where you are my Lord and you are my, you're changing me and transforming me and making me new and making me everything you intend. So I choose to do more than just tell you, get me out of hell, but rather I choose to follow you now where you lead me and you make the rules and I say, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. And I hand my life over to you, Jesus, in your name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.
Thank you, Lord. And I pray you would bury that in our hearts now and lead us forward as we seek to walk this new life. Lord, may we walk in victory over the world, over our flesh, and over the enemy. In Jesus' name, amen.